This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegas. And uh, we are here with Billy Pratt, Bad Billy Pratt, who uh, is the author of... um, Welcome to hell. Welcome to hell. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Yeah, no, of, uh, you know, a a excellent uh, novel and, you know, collection of cultural commentary that is, you know, something that Matt and I enjoyed quite a bit. And uh, you've had comparisons to uh, delicious tacos in (laughs) style and in uh, other respects. And, uh, you know, really just one of the leading voices of this new online, um, you know, sphere of, um, you know, culture and literature and commentary. And uh, thank you for coming on, Billy. We, uh, we oh. really appreciate it. Yeah, no, guys, thank you so much for having me. I know we've, um, we've planned this and replanned it several times. Because um, but- I've actually been out with hernia surgery. And it's, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, recovering from it wasn't so funny, but getting it was, getting it was uh, shockingly relevant to our discussion here because um, I, I, I directly blame the manosphere. I blame the manosphere, or at least it kind of came out of the manosphere. Um, I found the manosphere back in uh, early 2013. Um, and I had been, you know, off and on going to the gym for years and years, but you find the manosphere and it's like, gets you really pumped up on the idea that you're never doing enough. You're not doing enough with your time. You're not doing the right things with your time. You're not, you're not. And, and when you are doing the right things, it's still somehow not enough. There's like a tremendous amount of like uh, insecurity as far as like, you know, how much you should be doing. You don't want to be one of those, you know, cursed bug men who are playing video <laughs> games. Not, not that, I mean, not that I was, you know, but I'm like, shit, I got to do more at the gym. And suddenly I'm like, every time I'm at the gym, I'm trying to deadlift more and more. And I believe that is where I, I um, you know, ruptured my abdominal wall and um, had to finally get surgery for a few weeks ago. Shit, wow. that is tough. I, uh, I also have been diagnosed with a hernia and like, you know, it's, it's apparently very small. And so I, I've seen other doctors about it and, you know, first one is like, you got to get surgery. And then like, I finally found enough doctors who are like, yeah, that guy's full of shit. So um, <laughs> I'm not doing it unless I really, really have to. <laughs> yeah, it I, sounds pretty bad. 
I don't have a manosphere-induced hernia yet, but I'm sure <laughs> if I keep piling the weight on, uh, I too can get there. Um, but but no, uh, seriously, Billy, uh, great to have you on. Uh, your book, uh, Welcome to Hell, came out uh, in June uh, of this year. Uh, the same uh, month as mine through the same publisher, my book, Dragon Day. So I always kind of viewed us as like uh, having, you know, that in common, at least, you know, having dropped our, our debut books the same same month. I hadn't been familiar at you with uh, with you at all before realizing um, that our books were going to be coming out through Terror House so close together. Oh, awesome. Um, okay, congratulations on your book coming out. Oh, well, thank you. And congratulations to you, too. Um, and you yeah, so. no. I, yeah, I, I, the story for me with, with Welcome to Hell is um, after I published Dragon Day, I obviously wanted to, I'd already bought some Terror House books, but I wanted to buy even more. You know, when you release a book, there's this urge, for me at least, there was this urge to buy other people's. It's kind of a do unto others idea. It's like, if I want people to buy my book, I'm going to have to buy their book too. Uh, and, and yours was, was one of the, you know, um, in, in the big box of books I, I ordered from Terror House right after my book came out. Yours is right there at the top. And uh, I, I read it pretty quickly. Uh, obviously, it's got a fantastic uh, Matt Lawrence cover depicting Casey Anthony, which I always say is one of my favorite Matt Lawrence pieces. So that made it pretty enticing to open up. And, and from there, I just got totally into it. Um, as a Delicious Tacos fan, I can see the comparison. But I also think, you know, you, you, you have very much have your own style and very much have your own set of themes, which we'll get into. Um, but uh, I... I, I don't mean this just to blow smoke up your ass. I think I said it on the, the Lauren show as well. I, it definitely reading your book was, was a great moment of like, I'm pretty psyched that I'm published by, you know, the same, by this, by terror house, you know, that, that this is um the type of stuff that my publisher is publishing bodes well, you know, for me. So um that, you know, that's the compliment I'll pay you is that it, it, may, it may be even more excited to be a terror house alum. Oh, definitely. Um, I definitely feel the same way about Terror House. Um, a lot of really, really good stuff coming out on Terror House. And I got to say, Matt Lawrence, I have to give Matt Lawrence some props here because he really is the best cover artist in the alt lit, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. subgenre or genre. His covers are absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And I remember seeing your cover that my, my introduction to your, your book. I haven't read it, unfortunately, yet, but oh, I yeah. saw your cover and I was like, oh, man, that is badass cover and like i was already in love with the cover matt did for me but i'm like man if i had, a, if I had another book i want to cover just like that because that is that's awesome great well yeah Absolutely. You know, judge a book by its cover and people should, should <laughs> judge dragon day and welcome to hell accordingly and uh and pick them up yeah yeah definitely. But, uh, to get into a little bit of history because i only came across your work through terror house this past year um, I, I know, and you, you even talked a little bit about how you discovered the Manosphere in 2013. So maybe that gives us a little bit of our answer, but I'm curious. So you, so welcome to hell is draw. I think there's a lot, a lot of original material there, but a lot of it's also drawn from your blog, Kill to Party, which I, when did it debut? Maybe 2015. 2015. So? Okay. 2015. That's what I thought. Um, so I am curious sort of just what your come up was. I mean, did you think what was Kill to Party originally? sort of would you have thought of it as being part of the manosphere of that time or was it kind of its own thing is it more so that's kind of come into fruition with the book um so i guess yeah two-pronged question one how did you get into blogging and two um how did you ultimately link up with matt forney and terror house okay um 
I want to say the the kind of meme kill to party kind of came first before I even had a purpose or what to do with it. Um, the Casey Anthony trial was going on in the summer of, I think, 2011. And I was just, um, I was a neat at the time. I was not employed or in other otherwise uh, training or whatever it is, school. So I was sitting on my couch watching the Casey Anthony trial play out every day. And it just, it just blew me away how frivolous it all was, how, you know, usually someone has a better reason to kill, even though, you know, we're not going to say like, you know, killing your children's ever the right thing to do, but it usually is more complicated than it presented with Casey Anthony. Casey really just wanted to get out of that responsibility. And I feel like it was so emblematic of where we were at the time and where we were going. And um, <clears throat> I had a friend at the time who, uh, who still is in uh, film production. He, he's kind of skewed more documentary. And we were trying to think of ways to, how could we write this story? How could we write this story and get it made into a movie? And it, it, it's tough. It still hasn't even been done, even though it's so ripe for that. But I mean, it's, there are some things that are just almost like um, so resistant to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Completely, yeah, no, I, it's one of those things. I, uh, look, I will also another uh, thing to 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 reveal. I um didn't follow the Casey Anthony trial back in 2011. I was vaguely familiar with the name, so I kind of learned about that through your book, um, which I'm almost embarrassed about. But uh, I mean, I'm a a little bit young, so I guess I just kind of missed that back in high school. But uh, yeah, no, it is a fascinating case, and as you point out and as you write about, there's a lot of really fascinating dynamics to it, and this idea of um you know, killing to party, how, as you explain it, you know, this is someone who seemed essentially just to have killed someone or, or let someone die out of sheer negligence, um, you know, because they wanted to continue their hedonistic lifestyle, essentially. Uh, there's a lot there. I agree with you. But yeah, how do you make that into a movie? I don't know. It, the, it's the, the message is too dyspeptic, I think. It would have to be, I think, a very dark comedy uh, made by, you know, the right people in order to to really get anything worthwhile across. Because even though I think anyone would agree there's a story there, it's it's not a story that most people want to sell. <laughs> Definitely. And, and, and we were not, just for the record, we were not the right people to do, to, you know, to do something so delicate. So um, I kind of just let it sit. I thought it was a cool sounding little, uh, you know, three word, uh, kind of inspired from the Just the Can, that you know, kind of, that. Um, Billy, I think your so, microphone's a tiny bit muffled. Say something. Sorry. Okay. So, okay. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, that sounds a, a world better. So yeah. let's let's go with that. Um, sorry, I had I also had a separate internet thing on my end, but look, we're all back now. I let me. I, we're still recording. So yeah, um, okay, we, cool. we were talking about kill the party and how you can't make a movie of it. And you were saying something, and I couldn't hear all of it. But if you want to just pick up on that, or we can move on to another question. Either way. Sure. No, I, I, you know, I just, um, I loved the little meme I came up with, but I had no use for it. Uh, it was mind blowing. It was really um, floored by how deluded people are or how resistant people are to, to looking at things honestly. And um, you finally found this, like you think for, for a while, I'm like, well, am I some kind of like suburban prophet? Like, why do I see this shit that no one else is seeing? you find something like the manosphere and suddenly there are people who are having that conversation perpetually in, in you know, real time. 
and it was like so comforting and it was so mind-blowing and then this guy lies about women society lies about um <laughs> women being uh you know kind of like these moral superiors and you really latch on to that once you once you you know once you find it um so kill the party was kind of about initially writing about modern women with casey anthony as kind of like this um hyper-realized version of the modern woman but mm. i think that if you're going about this in an honest way you're going to see so much of what you're writing about in yourself and that's kind of where what Welcome to Hell ends. Like, Welcome to Hell ends with, like, I'm being so critical of, of, you know, society, so critical of modern women, modern womanhood. And it's like, how, you know, how much of that is really, like, in me, too? And, and by extension, like, kind of in all of us, more or less. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, to me, that's one of the things. With, at risk, of, I'm not putting down any other writers, but that is definitely a quality uh, in your work uh, that I see and that I really enjoyed is um, the degree of sort of self, not even self-criticism, just self-awareness, uh, your awareness of yourself as part of this culture that you are critiquing. Um, Sometimes some, I'm not naming any names. And also I think there's a place <laughs> for this too, but like some people in the manosphere are very much like, this is the way society is, but this is the way you should be. This is the way I am. Uh, you know, I am a God among men, but I, that, that sounds almost two point. I'm not, I'm actually not talking about that. I was thinking more about artiste and like kind of his whole extillation of, uh, you know, male freedom essentially. Uh, but in sure. your work it's because yeah, basically less so even than self, uh, aggrandizing folks, but more so, uh, people who really celebrate like, like, for example, artiste's work, old Rouge could kind of be read as like, um, you know, th this is how gr this is how you can maximize your freedom and maximize your power. And it can be really great. Whereas your work um, is very far from that sort of romanticization of freedom. Um, I mean, you're definitely red pilled, so to speak. Like there is a like, you know, um, you know, you're, you're not you. There, there's there's that manosphere element where you where you're about self-improvement and you're about sort of maximizing your, your, your status in the world. Like that, there is that element in your work, but also there's a very sort of self-aware slash self-critical element where, um, just for example, one, what, one, one part that really stands out to me is when you talk about, uh, male freedom as this sort of male drive to, uh, you know, stay at the blackjack table too long. Um, yeah. but, uh, th there's that great awareness, uh, of the sort of addictive, uh, quality that, chasing you know chasing after ghosts as you say or chasing you know chasing pleasure uh can lead you down sort of hellish rabbit holes of just wearing yourself out um that's not an element you get in all the manosphere some of the manosphere is much more on the sort of more romanticization side of that um i think that the manosphere is either guys who are closer to 30 who are still like very much taken by that lifestyle and guys who are in it longer who are looking to kind of see what money they can make off of it. And I think that uh, that's where you get, you don't get a lot of kind of intellectual honesty from, from these older guys because there is a lot of money to be made if you know the right things to say. I think that makes I, sense, yeah. I would suggest that, uh, Billy, your work is kind of, I and mean, we've talked about the Manosphere to Literature Pipeline, 
And so when, when we've talked about how Hartiste and Rouge kind of laid the groundwork for the ferment of like, you know, more uh, literary, you know, efforts that have come uh, about. And uh, so Delicious Tacos work, your work, other, um, other more literary efforts, uh, would you, you know, characterize your work as being grounded in that ferment, but um, being the product of, uh, you know, more uh, distillation and more, you know, years spent from that period? I think that I what I try to do is kind of a reaction to uh, the manosphere. I want to be maybe um, not to sound pretentious, but I'm trying to be like a step ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of what the what the you know what that next move is. Um, we we all understand kind of the the basic tenets of how relationships work, at least according to the manosphere. And I'm willing to allow space for you know that that we're incorrect about some things, but I mean, as, as, at least as far as this shared philosophy goes, we kind of understand how we think women work, how we think men work, how we think relationships work, um, good and bad. And I'm trying to kind of look ahead to uh, what, you know, what, what the next step of thinking would be. Right. I think that's kind Makes of sense. been a, a recurring theme on a lot of the episodes of this podcast that Dan and I have recorded thus far is the idea of kind of what comes after the manosphere, what comes after the red pill um, in terms of, you know, is it a, do, do you become, a, you know, is it a, is it a, is it a manosphere to literature pipeline? Is it a manosphere to politics pipeline? It's like, it's, we're looking because the manosphere is kind of something that's in the past tense, more or less, it really boomed about 10 years ago now, arguably, you know, eight to 10, give or take. Um, the and, and obviously the political scene is as it is it's a little uh you know the events of this past week notwithstanding it's still you know sort of a sort of a mire and not very often black pilling um but a lot of us have kind of coagulated on the internet around yeah again the the truth uh, you know the, i think that there is a w without um getting into it on a socratic level I, I think that there is a good case to be made that you know we are the faction of truth that we recognize some of these social realities um that you kind of discussed billy um and it's a question of like what to do with that knowledge in the culture as it is which is you know very repressive of of that knowledge and very repressive of art which um you know, explores that knowledge or explores those truths or those ideas. Um, so the, yeah, the idea of being uh, one step ahead of the manosphere, I, I don't think it's a pretentious notion at all. I think it's kind of the position we're all forced to be in. We have this value that we've gleaned from our various online communities and perhaps IRL connections. Um, and it's a question of like, what's next? Yeah, um, definitely, especially I think as you age out of wanting to enjoy the decline, as they put it. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, that's the big, at least on, uh, on the red pill, on the, you know, that Reddit sub, that subreddit, it's about enjoying the decline. It's about maximizing your lays. It's about never getting attached. It's about kind of living for yourself. But there does come a point where it's just not as exciting as it, it once was. And I think, you know, uh, biologically that's kind of the way it's supposed to be it is supposed to wind down in your at some point in your 40s at least a little bit mm -hmm. and um 
you see people react to that differently. Like you said, like Roosh, um, it would be the Manosphere 2 religion pipeline. Right. We um, mentioned that on a previous pod. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I love Roosh, um, but I don't think that's really where he wanted things to end up. And I think he's kind of with his back against the wall, um, unable to, I mean, his reputation precedes him to, you know, so it is, it is tough to see what's next because I think so few people are honest about what's coming up. Mm -hmm. But definitely swallowing that red pill has helped. It's helped, you know, literature, it's, it's helped uh, art. And even like, you know, certain approaches to politics, like Jack Murphy's project, uh, even, you know, Cernovic's project, like, um, to what extent do you think, like, accepting these, these red pilling truths informs your writing today? Um, entirely, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you this, I'm going to ask you this is accepting these red pill truths about women ultimately a good thing or ultimately not a good thing. Um, I think that my, I mean, if I'm gonna use the term game, you know, game, uh-huh. I think my game with women was probably just as good before as it is now. I think I went through a period where you'll, you'll hear a lot of guys um, talk about where once you find the official like manosphere, ways, ways to talk to women, et cetera, you kind of start getting bad at it for a little bit. Um, you, cause it, you're not, not, it's not supposed to be, um, it's not supposed to be something you're self-conscious of as you're doing. Mm-hmm. So once, once, you're self, once you're self-conscious of, oh man, did I say the right thing? Was this the, the alpha way to say it? Whatever it is, you're, you're out of the game completely. So I was probably a little better before all of this. So, okay. Um, was I more capable of having an authentic relationship with a woman? Probably. And even if I would have made mistakes that would have ended that relationship as I've, you know, I've, I've had long-term relationships with several women. And ultimately, um, if you really don't know what you're doing, it's, it's very easy to let that relationship decay. If you don't know what the, the components of what go into kind of keeping it healthy and positive. Um, but Am I even capable of doing that now? And I, I don't know. I don't know if I am. So is, is it a good thing? I don't know if it's a good thing. I think that male naivete was an important component of society. And my theory is that um, the, the laws are put in place, like marriage laws. Like, you, you, know, you get married young, you don't, you don't divorce. I think to preserve that male naivete, that you know, protecting men from yeah. the reality of the nature of women. Mm. So does it make, for, yeah. it makes for good art, but does it make for a good lifestyle? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we had Forney, Matt Forney on last week and he said, I would, he didn't say exactly that, but I think he said something that would be compatible with what you just said, which is that, um, uh, he, which is basically that he, uh, and Matt had actually written some sort of game-esque books in the past, uh, but he, he basically is of the opinion that most of the PUA stuff is either common sense or basically bullshit. And that the real contributions of, of the manosphere, even people who really knew what they're talking about on some level, like artiste had a, it was a lot more intellectual and cultural. It brought a lot more of that to the table than it, than did it bring the sort of actionable pragmatic advice that it, um, that it thought it was bringing. 
basically that the, I think there probably is some pragmatic advice that still benefits some people, even if it's something as simple as like, you know, eat healthy, lift weights. Obviously there's some sort of common sense, pragmatic advice out there, but when we're really talking about like the meat and potatoes of what the manosphere brought to the table, it was kind of more intellectual and cultural. And um, yeah, as you said, does it actually help you with women in the long term? Um, It seems debatable. Yeah. I think that the, the, you know, you could probably close all your tabs and never look back if you understand that you must continuously game your relationship. So you need to keep that, whatever, whatever attracted her to you in the first place, you need to keep some form of that for the rest of your life. Hmm. So I used to think that, well, now she likes me. So now I could be the real me. You know, now I could, I don't have to, you know, kind of posture um, I don't need to kind of always be the leader. I, I can't emote more. All of this stuff that is how we're supposed to, that's how the mainstream understands relationships, right? The mainstream is always telling men to be more emotional. And of course, that's really, that's the best advice from the manosphere that you need to kind of, you need to be the leader. You need to be the rock. You need to um, not use her as some kind of emotional sponge. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to, in essence, just kind of replicate the, the behavior that attracted her in the first place in some form of that forever. Yeah. No, I think, I think there is that, that, that basic sort of solid foundation of advice. And, um, in saying that you made me, reminded me of a thought that I've had while sort of reading Manosphere stuff that also ties into one of the themes we identified in Welcome to Hell, um, actually the theme that's discussed in the first, uh, passage um, but basically, yeah, not only in order to keep, um, you know, your wife or girlfriend attracted to you, do you need to, you know, keep hold on that original thing that sparked the attraction? Uh, but also one, one notion that I find, this is a little more in sort of the Bronze Age pervert realm of things. Obviously, it doesn't have to do directly with pickup. But something I've been thinking about a lot this past year is like, because um, I sort of moved in with my girlfriend um, over the course of corona quarantine which has been great but you know when you're living with a woman like you have to like you got to make sure that like you keep like it can't be all encompassing you know what i mean like you got to keep your own space um whether it's for me like you know just lifting weights an hour a day and like you just um the, the the female urge is always to sort of draw you in and be all encompassing which is which can be you know it's 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 a maternal instinct perhaps but um, but in order to not become, you know, a cuck, you have to like keep, <laughs> keep a little, to put it in like sort of mythical terms, you got to keep a little bit of fire in you. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So that's it. So even beyond just simply keeping someone attracted to you, just like in order to exist um, as a male in the world and be happy and be productive and, and all the rest, um, you know, you have to keep a little bit of that space is, is how I think about it. Um, and how does that tie into, into Welcome to Hell? Well, uh, it's maybe a little tangential, but one, one theme that Dan and I wanted to discuss with you is the idea of pursuing family versus pursuing truth, um, which is something that you introduce in the first section of Welcome to Hell. Um, I don't remember the exact context, but I have the quote in front of me. You write, 
Uh, one can either pursue family or pursue truth. While it isn't necessary for those who pursue family to also pursue, well, sorry, while it isn't necessary for those who pursue family to also pursue truth, the option is available. However, for one to eschew family, one must pursue truth. Nothing else matters and every little bit of consumption distracts from this pursuit. Um, I don't know if, if you want to unpack that uh, or I, we can hop in with our interpretations, but I'd be kind of, it seemed like an interesting dichotomy you were setting up. So I think we wanted to bring it up. Sure. Um, I think that for a long time, I think since I've been a teenager, I kind of thought about what what is life and how does one live their best life? What's the goal of life? What's, what's the goal of success? And um, I think toward my late 20s, and this was before I was, you know, before the manosphere, before I was at the peak of me being like a bug person, like a bug man. Um, I want to say I, like consumption and consumerism was like just entwined with this idea of like maximizing your life, making your life the best it can be. Um, And I think that I thought, well, if I just have the, you know, if I somehow uh, have this file collection of like a, a really badass movie collection, I, at the time torrenting was really popular. I don't know if you guys are too young to, to torrent. It's more of like a millennial thing. I remember, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I remember. But I was like, yeah, I, was, you know, I have this collection of movies. Like, oh man, I have every emulator on my PC. Not that I even ever used this stuff, but it was just the fact that like I had it, you know? And my, uh-huh. my goal was I want to get a 3D TV. That way I never have to go to the theater to see these bullshit superhero movies. I could just download them and watch them. Like I was setting up this like perfectly functional consumerist paradise because I didn't understand what else life could be. Um, I got an iPad and I started, uh, regrettably, I started getting rid of all my physical copies of books because it's like, well, this thing could hold 50,000 books. Like I don't need to take up all that space with, with objects. And it was like, I think technology, this was like in the dawn of the iPhone, technology was so at the forefront of life where it's like, you can perfect things with consumerism. You could perfect things with technology. And um, I realized how hollow and, and terrible that was, but that also made me think, what, what is, you know, things kind of fell apart, apart for me in my early thirties. Uh, I was not in a position to marry anyone. Um, I was still figuring out my career and, and, where it should go. And um, I started thinking about, you know, if I didn't have a family and I still don't, like what, how do you, how do you cobble meaning out of life if it's not stuff, Mm. if it's not like, well, I finally achieved this X amount of, and like boomers, of course, I mean, they weren't collecting garbage like, you know, like this, but they still had this consumerist idea of perfection. And I think when you break away from that, it's like, well, I need to produce. And um, I think that art is there's it's it's like kind of interpreting the world and kind of uh, creating something from that interpretation. So I think that you don't have to um, you could have a family and be an artist. It's preferable, probably. But I think that if you don't have a family, you should be contributing something. Yeah, no, no, that that definitely spoke to me. Um, and I would even take it a step further. I think it's it's good to have a family and be an artist. I, you know, hope to have a family myself, but like, realistically speaking, it can be, if you know, to really pursue that art, to pursue that truth that, you know, the, the, the stuff of domesticity 
um, whether it's a wife or kids or both, um, it, it can, you know, like that, that stuff's very important. Some would say it's the most important thing. Um, but like that, that pursuit of truth and that pursuit of art is fundamentally, it's, uh, it's a very solitary thing. And I think it really taps into um, that sort of notion of uh, keeping a little bit of fire inside. Like it, it has to do, especially if you're like a male artist, that we speak, uh, any art and that you create and any pursuit of truth that you engage in kind of comes out of that, I think, solitary masculine place. And it's a flame that, uh, that yeah, you can have a family and have that flame, but you have to like protect it. Um, so that was kind of my interpretation of uh of that section um, yeah definitely it's, it's just ironic that like i said before i think um <laughs> really really looking into the void and really figuring out the truth about certain things is making it a little difficult for me to have a relationship so Absolutely. ironic right yeah I mean, that's part of what we were talking about how truth if you're going to be really very truthful and you have to in your art, if you're going to make good art, that level of truth is not something you can have with friends or family because they're all going to hate you if you tell them <laughs> what you really, you know, truly think. So now, did you guys, now, did you guys have a phase where you did that? Because I, I think uh, everyone, oh no, I, everyone. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't think I did, but I mean, I can see how that would be very, you know, problematic if one did have such a phase. Wait, wait, I lost sorry. a lot of Facebook friends at the time. A phase where you tried to pursue truth in a more public venue, you're saying? Sorry, <laughs> no, I, I, think that, I think that once you start, like, once you tune into, you know, um, you know our, our avenue of Twitter, our little right. thing we have going, or, or the manosphere, or stuff like that, and before you really kind of understand how repugnant these ideas are to people, and you're, and I mean, it was like a perfect oh, storm. Yeah. And I, no, I, you know, I, I was like, you're on Facebook at like 2015 and you're, you think Facebook is this conversation people want to have when they make posts. So you're like, oh no, you know, you have it all wrong. Like this is, and it, it I don't yeah, know. I, yeah, no, like, I, I know, I know what you mean. Totally. Yeah. Like, yeah I, I did have that phase. Yes. I didn't, I, I wasn't going like full manosphere or like full dissident right or anything, but I was like, suggesting that Donald Trump was okay in like 20 and for me it was like 2018 because I'm younger or whatever and I came to this stuff a little later and um or like it was I think it was about that guy like Otto whatever from Otto Warmbier from um North you know who died in North mm -hmm. Korea and I said something like about people who'd say who'd said like he kind of deserved it because of his like white uh privilege or something and I, I like really I called it out in, in harsh terms and definitely ruffled some feathers um I, thankfully it was brief but yes i did have that phase where i where i thought oh I, like i'm in a smart guy people like me i'll just I'll, it'll be a conversation starter and people will, will see where i'm coming from and i'll like positively yeah. affect the culture that, that didn't last long naturally um thankfully i wasn't so stupid that i like totally you know made myself unemployable forever but yeah uh, <laughs> i think that you guys um i think you guys benefited from coming in maybe a little later I think in 2015, 2000, before, before, Trump, before Trump was elected, I'm assuming you both came into this sphere of Twitter um, after Trump was already elected. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I think that uh, the rules were a little less um, apparent after he was elected. And I think before then, it was almost like um, 
political conversation prior to that was just so stale and so boring for, for our entire lifetimes that uh, it was almost like we, we didn't know what not to say. I mean, we knew some things you can't say, <laughs> but right. But um, yeah, uh, before Trump, it was definitely like um, a little more of a free for all. And uh, I always talk to people who were like, yep, like that, that blew up my normie life. And that was that. And um, I, I just ended up even just deleting Facebook. I don't, I don't need to argue or have these people from high school hate me, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, no. And like, um, not even to get into even more controversial stuff, but like even some of the people who went, um, you know, even further, um, you know, like with the trial yeah. that's going on right now, and I don't even want to get into that too much. And I'm not necessarily sympathetic to a lot of those ideas. Um, but like, even them, I can almost kind of, not feel bad might be the wrong word, but I can understand how people got carried away in that moment and thought they could like go to rallies, you know, with, uh, without, you know, just, and just be captured on camera and like thought that could be okay. But because that was a very, that was a, a, a moment, everything was still uh, new back then in terms of, uh, you know, this is a political moment and, and Trump's this dynamic figure and like things are changing and things are changing for the better. And like, you can get out there and, uh, and at least opening up conversations that were previously, you know, forbidden. Exactly. Um, and that, that, that door got slammed very much in their face. Um, and I think it's the slamming of the door itself that kind of, I, at least I know it red-pilled me. And I think, Matt, you, you as well were kind of, um, in the aftermath of Trump's election, the kind of like uh, media monoculture response to it was just you know it it transformed mm. me into someone who uh you know became red-pilled on the media and then you know very you know relatively quickly red-pilled on most other you know things that are such <laughs> uh, you know talks about <laughs> for sure so you guys came in from from politics Oh man, my, I mean, I think we came in from different directions. We, we only met online this past year. Uh, my, I came in through through a strange sort of route, but yeah, I think it would it would be fair to say basically through politics slash culture, because um, I sort of got into it when I realized there was more of like an underground sort of publishing and art scene, uh, which I don't think is the most common uh, narrative, but. Uh, that, that was really my first, I, I, you know, I've always been like, had like some like conservative hankering. So like, it wasn't the, the political thing wasn't necessarily like a total 180. Um, but uh, in terms of getting into like this sphere is very much like, this is actually a really cool place to be. <laughs> and like sure. the people saying interesting stuff um, about politics and about just like cultural stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, bridging kind of from, from the manosphere, I found, uh, I don't know if you've been to our dark enlightenment. I haven't, but I probably am familiar. familiar. I mean, it's, it's it, dark enlightenment is essentially synonymous with NRX, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I have not been to our, uh, uh, dark enlightenment, but I, I'm sure that the ideas there would be familiar to me. I mean, it was, um, I do kind of feel lucky that I, I guess I, I could say I got red pilled the right way. Um, I went from the manosphere to our dark enlightenment where I immediately, immediately started reading Moldbug. Um, mm. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm by any stretch a Moldbug expert, but his open letter to open-minded progressives 
was like like switching on a light switch mm -hmm. like it, it like was absolutely mind-blowing and i think that if i didn't have that foundation of we've been lied to about women like almost like 100 like like the, the truth is like the polar opposite of what people say um i i don't know how receptive i would have been to Moldbug basically broadening that to well you've really been lied to about you know everything <laughs> yeah no that is that is like a, a very classic and i do think in some ways good and sort of well-adjusted trajectory to take uh i guess the bad trajectory is when you're just really pissed and angry and like you go crazy but slowly gleaning understanding about real social dynamics uh is is a good way to go i would say and um yeah, I know. We're definitely a very pro uh, mold bug podcast. So, yeah. 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 Mold bug's awesome. I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him once. And, really? Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was. He's a very, very cool guy. So I'm very pro mold bug as far as and I, and I kind of want to um, I think those I think that's really the extent of, uh, you know, as right wing as I'm going to get. And I think that yeah. is the, you know, the safe the safe route to take in in our current year. Oh, I think so. Yeah, Moldbug, I, lo and behold, has gained some, not mainstream, but he's, he was on Tucker is what I'm trying to say. And like, right, right. he, yeah, he's very good at, and, and I'm not even saying like, oh, he just knows not to say what he really thinks. I just think he's, I'm not even saying that. I just think he's a very smart and nuanced guy and has a take that it's, you know, it's intellectual and it's not founded in any like one prejudice or the other, but rather just a very kind of clean take on like what's not working <laughs> in society and how there are, there is a yes, right wing uh, alternative. Um, so yeah, I think he's a good sort of uh, what's the word. He's a, he's a relatively safe uh, and smart person to sort of follow. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And making inroads with like the hip cool kids and what have you. He's like showing up at parties and stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. The, the expat press party, Mold Doug made an appearance. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, to bring it back to the book a little bit, another sort of theme that we talked about a little bit, um, but uh, that I saw, that I found in Welcome to Hell, uh, especially on a uh, sort of second reading I did, sort of noticed it even more perhaps, um, was the notion of like the search for authenticity uh, you, you write, we'll get into this later too, but a big part of Welcome to Hell, you write a lot about pop culture, about, um, musicians and bands and movies and sort of tie them very skillfully, I, I will say, uh, into stuff about your own life, whether you're writing about, uh, you know, the Tom Hanks movie Big or, uh, <laughs> the trajectory of Lou Reed's career or the band Kiss's career, um, just as a little advertisement for the book, anyone who's into that kind of stuff, you know, pop culture essays, absolutely tune in uh, or, you know, rather read uh, Welcome to Hell. Um, kind of, Billy is kind of, uh, I don't know, have you read much Chuck Klosterman? <laughs> I don't know. If Dude, that's like... I was just about to say that Chuck Klosterman <laughs> really, I mean, inspired that side of it. Um, I remember reading an essay, my favorite Chuck Klosterman piece, aside from his, of course, 10,000 word essay on Kiss, which is going to appeal to me personally, but he wrote a really great essay on Kurt Cobain, comparing mm -hmm. Kurt Cobain to David Koresh. And I remember reading that thinking like, this is what I want to do. And this is like, dude, this is years before I wrote a word about this. 
but I yeah. was always like thinking I wanted to, I wanted to write these cultural essays because I, I, you know, my background is um, my degrees in literature and philosophy. I love oh, writing. Too. Exactly. My degree, oh, but go on. Me yeah. too. I loved, <laughs> I loved cool. writing, I loved writing, uh, you know, papers on literature, but that's one that is extraordinarily time consuming and two, who's going to read it? So I wanted to write about something that people are going to read. So I, when, I, when I found Cloisterman, I was so inspired. And I mean, and to give Delicious Tacos props, the, the memoir side of it, where I kind of like in, you know, inserted myself into it, really did come from Tacos, where I, when I read Tacos, it was this incredible, he, he speaks, like he does not posture one bit. There's no, there's no false self there. He is... Um, so open and honest. He's not trying to convince you that he's a cool person, even though, I mean, he is, he is a cool person, but mm -hmm. there's no, you know, when he talks about sex, it's not to impress you. And um, I wanted to combine those elements. And I, I really appreciate you saying that I did it well, because I'm always wondering if I'm, you know, it's a little too much of one, a little too much of all the, the other. I wanted it to be like a swirl. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I, without, I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast and I want to be nice. Like it, I, I, it is exactly that, you know, it is, it is a very seamless mix of, of exactly oh, those yeah. two things. Tacos into Closterman. That's, that, that was my, that was my honest reading uh, of it. Um, so very well done. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. Chuck Closterman is great. And, um, you know, you definitely ha have very much nailed that style of essay on popular culture. Um, related to that too. So, you know, Closterman's Gen X, I believe you're Gen X. Not that I'm going to make you say exactly how old you are. Oh, that's cool. Um, I'm 41. There you go. Uh, yeah. So pretty much Gen, you, you, you would say well, you're on the cusp. I think 41 is like, yeah, maybe millennial, maybe Gen X. Yeah, I, I guess there's a word for it. That's X. I never said it out loud. It's they combine the, it's a poor man too of Gen X and millennial. Yeah, you know, Probably, yeah, something like that. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I've heard Zillennial with a Z, uh, which is, I guess, more or less what I am, you know, a younger millennial. But uh, maybe, maybe it's Zillennial with an X. It's the same word spelled there. I don't know. But uh, nevertheless, I, I did um, not to overstate this, and on some, you know, some people kind of roll their eyes at the whole Gen X thing. But like, uh, I, I do think in in a very and I and I mean this only in a positive way. There is something very Gen X about about your writing, in as far as especially that theme of the sort of search for authenticity that you write about. Um, which again, sort of like we were talking with the manosphere stuff. There's a nuance there. You're not just writing about you know oh society is bullshit and you have to live authentically and here's how you're going to do it. It's more like you know. Um, there is like, there's a lack of soul or a lack of, you know, there, there's this um, sort of dead spirit at the heart of culture. And like you, you seek that authenticity, but there's also an awareness of your work that like you can be searching for that authenticity and never find it. Like the authenticity that you're searching for may just be out of your, out of your reach is, is kind of the uh, slightly more pessimistic reading of, of, of someone I find you writing. And then back to that blackjack staying at the table too long idea. There's, I feel like there's also this sense that you write about very keenly or poignantly that in one search for authenticity, um, they, you know, you can stay at the table too long and you can burn out. Um, but, it, but it's nuanced. It's not just that. Cause like you write about like, you know, 
uh, the guy from REM who started a farm. And I think, you know, you're, you're genuinely positive about that guy or, or even Lou Reed's metal machine music. How is this sort of um, cathartic burning down of his career? You say one refrain in the novel is it was an integrity move, uh, which I, which I <laughs> like. Uh, so like, like there are authentic integrity moves that you can make and that can be good, but also you can stay too long at the table <laughs> it's, uh, is, is, is kind of the nuanced take that I, that I bring away from your book. And I, I loop that into Gen X. I think there is something very Gen X about that search for an elusive authenticity that may not be there. It's something that I recognize uh, in, in writers, even like David Foster Wallace. I know he's kind of a cucked comparison and your book's not that much like David Foster Wallace, but nevertheless, there is a little bit of that thematic overlap, but even, you know, a writer that I like more like Brett Easton Ellis or even like Chuck Palahniuk with Fight Club. Um, yeah, again, just that notion of the search for authenticity that may be just out of your reach. Um, I don't know. Does any of this speak to you? Do you think it is generational Gen X? Um, um boy, I mean, do millennials care about authenticity? I, I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, the, the relevancy of Catcher in the Rye diminishes by the year. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I, do, I do teach English and um, I was very excited to finally teach a class Catcher in the Rye. And because as a 10th grader, I read it in 10th grade. Mm -hmm. And that's, that has to be where this kind of like the genesis of all of this. And yeah. um, it, I remember it just it was uh, one of my favorite books in high school. It really just blew my mind. And um, I'm reading it to kids today. And it, I mean, it doesn't, it didn't resonate even a little bit. Wow. Um, I mean, look, I, so not to butt in, but I have to, I mean, it's interesting. Like I, um, I'm a millennial, I'm 20, uh, almost 27. Uh, and yeah, I too read Capture in the Rye in 10th grade. So about 10 years ago now. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I loved it and it spoke to me. Uh, but but maybe, you know, I, I'm not sure if everyone else in my generation would have said the same. And it sounds like maybe, you know, Gen, Gen Z proper that's in high school now, uh, or maybe even younger. Um, yeah, you're telling me it doesn't speak to them, which I, I, I I'm, I'm not shocked. Like, what does the notion of authenticity mean to the TikTok generation? And by the way, this is not me shitting on Gen Z. It's just Sure. The cultural signification has changed so much. And I don't know if like authenticity or like being real, but no, being real is a concept that you see kicked around. So I don't know, but like, yeah, I think that the notion of like being authentic um, spoke to me at a certain age, you know, and I, I like a lot of Gen X and older writers maybe because of that, but I, it definitely does seem like it's something that's missing from the culture now. I think, um, I think it doesn't occur to Gen Z. And I think that, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here. I think millennials want the appearance of authenticity as if it were a consumer good in and of itself. Um, I do think that there's less time to be reflective just because millennials and, and especially Gen Z have grown up with so much content available at their fingertips. So yeah. a few weeks ago during Halloween season, I was watching uh, Halloween 3 I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar. I with just series. watched season of the witch. <laughs> That's it. Good. Yeah. Good okay. movie. <laughs> so what blew me away? I mean, I, I really, I, I enjoy it more every time I see it. It's so weird, but what really, I think the scariest part of that movie is the first five minutes. There's, um, there's a guy sitting at a gas station, the gas station attendant. 
and he's reading a magazine and it's nighttime. He's completely alone. You can't be alone like that in today's world. No one is alone like that in today's world. And that kind of solitude I found to be the most frightening part of the movie. Um, and it really stuck with me. So if you don't have spaces like that, where you're in your house, you, you don't have friends to talk to, you just have the collection of CDs or magazines, whatever you have, there's just no space to really sit around and reflect on things. You're just kind of constantly being given more and more media to consume. That's absolutely true. Like because of these things, you know, we're never alone. And that's something that I've reflected on because I remember I was on vacation somewhere and I, you know, didn't, wasn't able to use my phone and my reading comprehension, I was reading a novel, never was better. It's just like my mind clicked back on and I was able to like really get into this novel. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that this, you know, constant companion of, you know, media, Barrage really does, um, you know, destroy our focus to some degree. Yeah, I know. Go on. No, I just think millennials kind of understand the concept of you want to seem authentic. Millennials are very, I think, the first generation to really embrace the uh, like perception control. Um, yeah. Far, far more than, I mean, they were the first generation to be really adept at using social media. Um, I just don't think it occurs to Gen Zers. I don't think yeah. that, I think it's a completely foreign idea. I, I think yeah, that there's foreign, anything yeah. outside of uh, profiles, outside yeah. of the profile that you present. And that's something that I think you're right is foreign to Gen Z and to, uh, you know, millennials. It's where the generation that grew up knowing that like, oh, you have a Facebook account, you have a, this account, a, that account, and you present in this way and you present in that way. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's weird. It's not natural. And Gen Z, they don't, um, you know, but for them, it's, it's not not natural because they grew up with it. Yeah. Well, case in point, uh, Gen Zers do not use Facebook. So it's already kind of more depersonalized. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> there, yeah. it's Instagram at best, but I don't even know if the youngest people use that anymore. Maybe it's all TikTok. It's, it's more stimuli and it's not uh-huh. so it's not so founded in uh, like a sort of linguistic encapsulation. You know, there used to be the Facebook bio where you, I mean, I, when I was like 13, sure. 14, like I tried to like pour my soul into that thing. And I, yeah, I don't <laughs> think any Gen Zers even um, care about that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's more about the surface of things, more about just, I, I don't know. It, it, you know, obviously we could, we don't just want to like sound old complaining about, how weird Gen Z culture is and the Billy Eilishness of it all. But like, obviously there is an element of that where it's like, it's hard to even tell when they're being serious or not, but look, okay. So we could put it negatively. Like um, these people don't even have time to think, you know, and, and therefore the notion of authenticity is foreign to them, or maybe they knew it was bullshit all along. And like, I don't know if there's been any really great Gen Z art, so I'm not going to be like too laudatory of them as a generation, but like, a lot of the things that they would say like, oh, that's bullshit anyway, uh, they're probably right about. I mean, again, I, I, I poured my soul into that Facebook bio, but like that wasn't really me either. So, sure, <laughs> you know, Gen Z is sort of, I don't want to overstate it, oversimplify, but I mean, some people actually compare Gen Z to Gen X because Gen X, you know, said, in you know, again, to, whenever we're speaking about this, we're speaking in 
sweeping generalizations, but the notion being that Gen X sort of swept away certain boomer mentality as being bullshit. Uh, in theory, that's what's happening with Gen Z now is, is the culture's kind of, they're, they're sort of more of a, yeah, you know, a, a termite is too negative a word, but a generation that sort of um, breaks free of stuff that happened before. Uh, and perhaps there's an element of that, but what, what that, what comes next is a, is a, is a big fat question mark to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess stay tuned, right? I, yeah. I don't know either. I don't, I don't have a good, I, I don't have a good enough answer. I do think that uh, there's going to be more currencies of non-binary yeah. uh, gender. Um, I think that is, we're, we're just really seeing it roll out. And I think it's, um, I mean, I don't know if they're going to be ultimately sticking with it for the rest of their lives or if this is something that's like uh, kind of the new punk rock for, you know, yeah. it's, it's something you outgrow in your, in your early 20s. I, I don't know. Yeah, or maybe it will move beyond being just a, a gender issue and morph for good or for ill, probably for ill, <laughs> into other realms where it's, <laughs> because it's not, yeah, it's not just like different, it's not just like uh, a million different genders. It's also, again, the, and you've been posting a little bit about Billie Eilish recently. So I'll, I'll use this yes. as her as an image. It's the whole, um, uh, not to get academic about it, but like, you know, post, post-modernism of it all, of gluing different elements sort of together where Billie Eilish is like emo, but also sort of like takes influence from hip hop. And I, I feel like there's an element of that in, in Gen Z culture, where it's kind of an amalgam of a million different like signifiers. <laughs> but that, 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 that could steer the conversation in like an unnecessarily sort of academic direction that I don't want to, but you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's a kind of cultural melange that's going on. Um, and I, I feel like it taps into that gender thing a bit because it's all about like this, this, I think false notion of creating yourself totally from scratch. Sure. Yeah. But to, to go back a little bit, um, one thing, another little great insight in your book is you've described reading as the leg day of writing. And I was reminded of that when we were talking about being overstimulated as we all are. I mean, like I, uh, I try to read, I don't read like terribly, terribly much, you know, of it, but I try to read every day is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and it really is this incredible process of like, you know, I, I do it in the morning. Like I, I wake up and I, 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 you know, I end up checking my phone, but then I'm like, all right, I'm going to read a chapter of a novel. And yeah, it's like, you have to, it's like a cognitive switch you have to make. And sometimes you have to like read that, that first page, like a bunch of times before you can actually attune your brain to be able to take in information in that sort of more patient and careful and reflective way. Um, but no, to bring it to your quote, um, I don't, I mean, it's almost like, I can't believe you'd be the first person to say that, but I think you probably are <laughs> reading is the leg day of writing. It's a, it's a perfect, uh, perfect image yeah definitely um i find that my writing my writing process kind of uh i start with reading stuff that um you almost want to start with your takes you want to start with your reflections that aren't necessarily put into flowery language yet and then i i try to read stuff that is kind of um has the sound of what 
I want my work to sound like. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that I'm pretty good with, with like kind of emulating a writer's voice or maybe like kind of getting a feel for a writer. I, at least I try to. So I think there's the, the stage of like taking in all this information and processing it. And then the stage of the output where I want to, you know, I want to, I want to kind of shape that information into something that isn't just like bullet points, you know, that, that, yeah. that actually has like that merit in reading. Absolutely. I would actually, I would, I would, rec I mean, I, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this, but what you really want to do is not look at your phone. You want to read a little bit in the morning, then maybe try to write 500 to a thousand words. If you have the time to do that and then look at your phone after your productivity will just go through the roof. Mm. Like there's like your, your Twitter, your phone mind eraser. So I think totally. when, I've been at, when I've been at my best has been like doing that journaling first thing in the morning. Mm. That's why I read before I go to bed because it, it works perfectly because I, you know, I'm not looking at my phone. So I detox from the phone and, uh, you know, I have, I'm able to focus on reading. And by the time, you know, I'm read enough, I'm, you know, no longer overstimulated and I can go to sleep. Hmm. Well, now that we're getting into routine talk, um, the last sort of theme that I, I sort of identified in Welcome to Hell to bring up um, is the salvation. Uh, maybe that's too strong of a word, but the salvation in routine and of good lifestyle choices. Uh, Billy, uh, you, you write in Welcome to Hell, but also in our personal chats about how you go to bed really early, get up really early. You know, you have a chapter in Welcome to Hell on your weightlifting regime and, you know, eating a good diet. Um, I, you know, and it sounds boring to some people like, oh, you know, who cares like how you spend your days? But like, I always find when I, when there's someone, whether it's a writer or in some other field that I respect, um, that they have some kind of accomplishment that I admire, like, I, I actually find like, I, I love to know how they, how they handle their, their day to day. Cause like, it's often a struggle for me. Like, you know, when, how much time do I put into working out? How much time do I put into writing, reading work, yada, yada. It's like, I think it is relevant and it becomes a major theme, especially towards the end of welcome to hell, how like sort of, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about, you know, the degree to which the book is about hedonism, about the notion of killing the party. And uh, I, you're, for me, Welcome to Hell left me the thought with that, like, when the party's over, what you're left with is, or what you can be left with is routine. And you can maximize your routines uh, in order to get, like, the best outcomes. Uh, and it's not a boring thing at all. It's all about, like, channeling creative energy. Um, and I don't know, this, I guess this isn't really a question, um, but uh, just, just, I don't know, commenting on um, the degree to which routine and the salvation routine is a major theme in Welcome to Hell. Sure, um, but like I said before, I, I, well, for one, I 100% agree that I'm all about maximizing productivity and trying to, you know, really maximize my, maximize my creative energy. But like I was saying before, how I kind of want to be like the next step of the manosphere. I do have in that, in that chapter, um, I do wonder if productivity can be an abyss. Right. Like, if you make every part of your day pragmatic, is, 
I mean, is there, there, there are, there have to be at some point diminishing returns. Yes. I think I said, I think I yes. ended that chapter with um, asking, uh, you know, saying, uh, you know, talking to God directly and saying, well, maybe I'll start getting to bed like 15 minutes earlier. That's, that's what you, yeah. Okay. I over in, in my little run up there, I, I think I overstated the productivity part. Um, I, I think more just generally the salvation routine, whether it's for productivity sake or for like, to sound like an SJW, like for mental health, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Routine is not just about productivity, but just finding, finding that rhythm in life where you are both as, you know, productive, but also balanced. Um, and yeah, no, I think that's, it's not all about productivity. I think the theme of finding that balance in your life really comes across. I think it does maybe have a little bit to do with sort of reach Well, like you talked about earlier, like you hit a certain age and that biological clock or whatever you want to call it tells you, you know, you stop, stop just chasing things all day and rather just like, um, you know, settle down a little bit and find that routine. Um, I just, I feel like that's where the book sort of left me in the end was like, you know, that you can burn out. There's all this burnout that happens culture where we're all overstimulated. Like there's so much that can burn us out. And yet there is, you can find, you know, just, just in the little decisions you make in your day-to-day life, like you can find that sort of peace. Definitely just, you know, don't overdo it. (laughs) No, there's, there's, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was, um, I, I edited so much of my, my book at, at, at work during my off periods. And like, I'm sitting there with like, you know, a, <laughs> a big printed out copy of my book, a pencil in my hand. And I'm thinking to myself, how like irritated I am about people like making chit chat. And it's like, how ridiculous, like, I'm, I'm wrong, though. I'm ridiculous. Like, there should be space for obviously people talking to each other at work. And like, you know, you think like that's overdoing it, you know, like actually getting, getting mad at your coworkers for not, <laughs> not, not, not sitting in silence, you know? Yeah. 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 No, there, uh, there was a, a part of uh, getting to the writing process, a part of your book where you mentioned that um, the best writing is when you are not thinking of your audience or you're writing well, not not thinking of them, but you're not trying to please them. You're writing, you know, your own story and you're not concerned with whether they'll like it, whether they won't. And I 100%, you know, feel that and agree with that. But I'm curious, how do you square that? Because you have an, you know, impressive social media presence. How do you square the, um, you know, the artistic side where if you want to do great art, you, it's best if you do not concern yourself with how it will be received with also building a presence as an author. Oh man. I think that you need to hope people like what you have to say. Um, so much of finding an audience is luck. Um, I, I do think that I'm pretty good, but I think I, I benefited from getting in early on a sphere of, of the internet that was kind of, you know, growing like in real time, like by the day. Um, I think there weren't many uh, very interesting Manosphere writers um, outside of Delicious Tacos at the time um, who were writing more than just like very 
you know, instruct like instructional manuals. Um, I think that uh, when I started introducing um, like right-wing Twitter and people in the neo-reactionary sphere to manosphere ideas, there wasn't really a lot of cross-pollination there. So I think that I, I, built an, I built an audience luckily that way. But I do, every time I write something, um, when I reference, when I make a reference, I think to myself, like, do I explain this reference or do I kind of just let it, let it settle and let whoever's going to get it is going to get it. And, you know, um, maybe no one will ever get it. Maybe no one will ever praise me for being clever, which is like, you know, obviously what you want as a writer, but it was really about like, how much do you give your audience? How much do you explain? How much do you hold their hand? Um, I think that the writing, I think any art needs to be kind of your subconscious interacting with, with the medium. Um, you know, like I said, there's the phase of you're taking in, you're, you're taking, you're taking things in, you're reflecting, you're kind of like processing the world around you. But I think that output just needs to be purely subconscious and, and, you know, it is what it is. Um, I also do want people to read my work because I think it's great. So I gave my title, uh, I gave my book title a meme, my welcome mm -hmm. to hell. I wanted it to be a meme title. And I think to, to at least some extent that's worked out for me where people, yeah. So, I mean, I, you have to, you do have to promote yourself to some degree, but I think when it comes down to the work itself, I think the work itself must be genuine. Anytime I've tried to pander, write something because I thought it would get views, whatever, it never did. And I finally just took that as a sign of do whatever you want and hope for the best. Yeah. But you are quite a maestro with Twitter. I mean, you get, you gained a couple thousand followers since the release of Welcome to Hell, correct? I did. Yeah. So, I mean, no, not to undercut anything you just said, because I think, yeah, the work, especially when it comes to actual literary output, you just can't worry about it, as you said. But uh, but within that, um, you know, I would give you props that you you do. You're very good at posting sort of interactive stuff on Twitter, whether it's that game you were doing recently about whether certain women <laughs> had OnlyFans or not. Um, or, or even, I think, just very geniusly is just, you know, having a meme title. That's meme, not mean. A meme title uh, for, for your book. Uh, and you're able to just pull stuff from the headlines and write welcome to hell and then you throw a link under it and it's good content and like you you know you've been you've been you've been tweeting welcome to hell at least since june if not before uh but like i still see some of your welcome to hell tweets and like they make me laugh like if you have a formula there uh where you can easily easily um put out like good twitter content uh and link it to a very professional sellable item um so yeah, there's basically, long story short, as you are proof of, you know, there's ways to sell your work without selling out. Um, I think you even had like a list over the summer. I was kind of digging for it in prep for this show, didn't find it, but you, you came up with a, li a list of like eight to 10 ways to boost your Twitter following, didn't you? Um, I might have. I honestly don't remember. Well, but I, mean, I was going to say, it just on the subject of memes. Um, unfortunately, you can't you can't copyright a meme or trademark. Um, just today, just today, do you know Rolo Tomasi? Uh, I know yeah. he old manosphere guy, right? Old, old manosphere guy who does now he does um streams on YouTube. He named his stream "Kill to Party." Oh, damn! So, right. I saw so that I, now. Yeah, 
So I tuned in just to see, I, look, man, I don't, you know, you can't, you can't cop, you know, you can't own a take. You can't, it, it is what it is, but at least mention me and his yeah. explanation of where he came to this kill to party meme was just an absolute lie. He said that he first saw it in 2012 and um, he, he explained it in his own like self-serving way. Oh of, man. You know, I mean, grifting his, his manosphere wow. philosophy, but man, that just was like, Oh, he's, he's, lying he stole my thing and he's lying about it i think so you know if he if he called it welcome to hell i'd be like well can't really copyright that but kill right. the party is pretty specific <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. yeah totally agree you just gotta let it go and i offered him uh, i you know i said well I, I see you like my meme if you'd like to review my book let me know and of course he he liked that tweet but did not did not get back to me well maybe maybe there's time but damn i'm sorry to hear it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, but, you know, the thing is, though, just you just got to keep pushing forward, making new things. You know, you can't just rely on one gimmick. Right. And look, maybe maybe he'll feel bad and, and he will, you know, review the book. Who knows? Hoping for the best. But yeah. And like, um, frankly, your audience, they, you know, they know you and they read your work. And Rolo has, you know, a big audience. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, his audience, if they stumbled across your work, would incorrectly presume that, you know, you had, um, you know, uh, taken his title. <laughs> I think, I think they would correctly presume that like your work is your own and yeah. like clearly like, you know, it, it syncs with everything that you've done. Right. Yeah. Just totally. There. Yeah. Totally great. Uh, Billy, what, uh, do you have any projects now that welcome to hell is out and doing well, uh, what projects are you working on now? What, well, you know, what's next for Billy Pratt? Um, you know, I want to, I want to write, Welcome to Hell was um, a bunch of kind of loosely, loosely related uh, blog posts going back to 2015 that I kind of retrofitted into a book. And the, the best compliment or one of the best compliments I can get is that it actually reads like a book. Um, I feel it does at the end of the day, read like I wrote it in one, not, not in one sitting, but in one shot as one book. Um, I kind of want to take that formula um, and start from the ground up and kind of, I have an idea of where I want the next book to go. I have an idea of the themes I want to touch on. And I want to start that way, writing for a second book rather than kind of retroactively retrofitting old essays. Um, people tell me that Welcome to Hell is depressing, and um, I didn't think it was. So no, yeah. I want to, I want to write something that is kind of darker. I want to actually go darker, and I want to. I would like to, as best I can, make it non-sexual. I want to, I want to kind of veer away from that. I'm someone who, if you tell me what my writing is or what my writing is about, I'm gonna just want to do the opposite. Um, I don't want to be pigeonholed into anything. I definitely am not trying to actually be delicious tacos. Um, so I think there are things that we could get into that are, are deeper than dating. I think dating is almost like, um, almost, I don't want to call it artificial, but it's like this, emotionally, it's, it's heartbreak is almost like a, like a parody of real, dark sadness yeah um, i get what you're saying it's also just very done at this point 
you you yeah you know right of course but i think with heartbreak it's it's something you typically i mean usually you get over and you kind of almost fondly remember that whole experience but i think there's there there are real issues people have with family issues people have with themselves that are very painful and very real and not something that you move past in the same way mm-hmm. and i really want to touch on those things i want to talk about relationships with you know uh, your parents i want to talk about um, you know, these things that typically people don't are uncomfortable with, people don't want to talk about. I really just want to kind of go, go in that route and make it not so dark, like intentionally dark, but, you know, I just want to talk about things that maybe resonate in that way. Um, almost to compare, have you seen Human Centipede? No, actually, I know what it is, no, obviously, actually. but I haven't, I never, never got around to it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I think Human Centipede is mm-hmm. great, but Human Centipede compared to Human Centipede 2 is like a Disney movie. Human Centipede 2 is really like every frame of it is, is trying to make you squirm, is trying to make you uncomfortable. And I kind of want to make that like the analogy between this book and the next book. I want gotcha. to really go for those things that are, um, you know, are darker. Hmm. Interestingly, and I don't want to promise because I have not started writing my next, you know, my effort after Dragon Day yet, but uh, so I don't want to promise something that I then never deliver on. <laughs> but um, that's somewhat uh, in the wheelhouse of what I what I may be going for as well. I, I think that I kind of thought Dragon Day was darker than it was. I mean, it's about a bombing. So it's a little bit dark. It's obviously pretty dark, but I, uh, yeah, I kind of want to hone in on some more, yeah, extreme emotions. Uh, well, I look, I I genuinely don't want to promise something that I then don't deliver on, but I, I think I understand your process. You know, you, you have a, a first novel and then with the next one, it's not so much that you need to push the envelope for pushing the envelope sake, but like there is a desire to go deeper or go harder in some, yes. in some sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to really, you know, just, just kind of continue that path. No, that's fantastic. And, awesome. all, and um, it, we don't need to put this in the final recording if this is not currently on the docket, but were you uh, talking about potentially curating a uh, compendium of like pop culture essays um, by you and others? Yes, I do want to do that. I'm just, finding a lot of trouble kind of getting motivated to start Mm, um it's something i want to do because i quite frankly i think it's going to raise my profile and i think that i have some very um i don't want to say powerful because it sounds corny but i have very i very well-known acquaintances who would participate and i think that you know in doing so would raise my own profile but um i'm you know just at the end of the day i'm really into the stuff i'm into and um so yeah, no, I do want to do that, but I, I think I need to kind of push myself to get it going. Yeah, fair enough, and you know, no, no rush. I would definitely would be happy to potentially contribute uh, when you're working on it. I do think it's a good idea because yeah, you you do have some great acquaintances, and uh, look, I think that you are the kind of Chuck Closerman of uh, of this corner of Twitter. But I also think there's room for other people uh, to you know for you to sort of corral uh, some some other people because it's. It's not, I think it is, it's a space that can grow, you know, writing about pop culture, that close to esque way, but also in a kind of red-filled way. Um, I mean, you could fill libraries with that. So, I think sure. it's a good idea. 
because there's nothing else out there like it right now. So that's, uh, that's all yours. <laughs> yeah, no, def- definitely. I, I appreciate that. So hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, unless either of you uh, have anything else you want to add or promote, um, I think we can pretty much wrap it up. No, good. man, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I thought it was a great conversation. I'm, I'd be, you know, uh, very happy to return at some point. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I enjoyed Thank you for coming on, Billy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been good. Yeah, no, fantastic conversation, guys. 